Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow Him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. It is great to see you all. I love a service where you have to sit next to a stranger. Like that's just the way it should be. So welcome here. Really glad you're here with us. Um, we've been praying for what we just witnessed to happen a lot this year. In 2015, we praised God for the fact that five individuals at Central um, gave themselves to baptism. But going into 2016, some of the leaders in the church said, we actually really desire to see more because baptism is a real evidence of the fruit that God produces in people's lives. It's evidence that God's at work in our church. So we praise God for five, but we ask for more. And what's so cool this morning is that you just witnessed the 28th, 29th, and 30th baptisms at Central in 2016. So... And if you're brand new to church and you're like, what in the world just happened? <laughs> that's, that's tr- I don't use a hot tub that way. Uh, <laughs> what you saw is, is something that happened in their hearts already. You saw an image of it. You just saw a picture of what Jesus does in people's lives. So when they go under the water, that symbolizes death to sin, dying to an old self in a crooked way, saying, I need help, I need Jesus, and then coming up out of the water as a new creation, alive in Christ, or as they say in the 70s, born again, right? So that's just the way it is, and so we praise God that that's happening among us. My name's Matt. I want to welcome you here. I'm a pastor at Central. If I'm not in Agassiz, I'm preaching in Chilliwack. If I'm, I'm not in Chilliwack, I'm preaching here in Agassiz. I consider it a privilege to do that. So if you come hang around at Central long enough, you'll, you'll see me often. And uh, a little bit about me is I'm an unhandy man. Uh, one of the hard things about being at Central is that there are a lot of handy men. A lot of them. I've witnessed it many times. I am an unhandy man. Let me give you an example about what I mean. We have a flat screen TV on our, on our wall in our living room, and then there's uh, like a table that holds like the digital boxes and stuff like that below. And uh, my wife didn't love the way that the black cables looked against the light wall. So I said, I got this. I got out, I got out my three tools, and uh, all of them. And uh, I cut out a hole behind the TV in the drywall. And then, you know, I really lined it up perfect, like directly below, I, I, I cut out a big hole in the drywall, pretty big, because I needed to find the cable that I was about to pull back there. So a couple big holes in the drywall, and then I got the HDMI cable and started to just sort of put it through the hole, thinking this is just going to drop down to the bottom, and I'll grab it. And it went about three inches and then hit a two-by-four that was going across the wall. So, And then I didn't really know how to patch such big holes. So needless to say, uh, the TV and the the table are perfectly placed in our living room and never shall be shuffled. Uh, But it turns out, uh, I find this out often, is that there's a right way to do things and a wrong way. There's a way in which something functions really well and a way in which it doesn't go so great. And, And the truth of the matter is this, that Jesus shows us in the Word um, the way in which the church is meant to function. There's a, the, a right way to, to be a church. And there are a, a number of things we could say about that this morning, but we're going to focus on a little letter called Titus in the Bible. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you have an app for that, you can um, 
get that going. If you don't have a Bible, we have some places where there are Bibles. If you want to throw your hand up, an usher will even bring you a Bible, and we'll show it to you on the screen. It's, it's one of the pastoral epistles towards the end of the Bible, right after First and Second Timothy and just before the book of Hebrews. And we're going to look at three things that the Apostle Paul says about the church, tells to this pastor named Titus. But first, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Titus, who was a pastor that Paul left on the island of Crete in order to help the church grow healthy and strong. I have not been yet left by someone in a Mediterranean island to teach the church. Perhaps the Lord will use me that way someday. It's not what's going on right now, and I'm thankful for that. I'm glad to be here. But that's a pretty sweet gig in some ways. Titus is left on this little island called Crete in the Mediterranean. But the church is a mess. The church is just getting started. And so Paul's concern and commission to Titus was to see the church keep the gospel central for life, growth, and mission. So I'll tell you where we're going, and then we'll go there rapidly before the kids take over, okay? So first, we'll see in Titus chapter 1 that leadership defines the church, right? These, these are the ways in which, the, these are some of the things that we need, these critical traits of the church that help it thrive. One of them is leadership defines the church. In Titus chapter 2, we see that discipleship builds the church. We'll talk about that. And then thirdly, evangelism spreads the church, So let's read a few verses. Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 5, regarding leadership defining the church. This is why I left you in Crete, Paul says to Titus, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, meaning loves the Lord and teaches his family to that end. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Now, Paul does something really smart here. He lets their own prophet say how horrible they are, and then he says, And he's right. These people are the worst, he said. And it's true. So that's what Paul's doing. He's just affirming what they say of themselves. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Why rebuke? To be all judgy? To embarrass them? No. Rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, for the good of their faith, that we would correct for their good, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. I'll pause there. Firstly, keeping the gospel central is really what Paul is saying here, and leadership defines the church, good or bad. You know this. This is even beyond the church. In organizational structures, where the leadership goes, so goes the whole organization, 
right? The, the, the dynamic, the circumstances, the culture they create is the culture that exists. What they value, the, the, the whole organization values. And the same is true in the church. And Titus here is instructed to counter false teachers by appointing gospel-centered leaders who can teach and rebuke with the gospel. I'm saying gospel like nine times. If you're wondering what the gospel is, it's what you just observed. Death to sin and resurrection in Jesus Christ. It's forgiveness, as we heard in that testimony. Jesus offers forgiveness, and then he gives us new life. And so what these leaders are to look like, Paul describes in verses 5 through 9. And it's not so much gift-based or talent-based. It's based on godly character and sound doctrine. Leading family well and teaching what is right and refuting what is wrong. So there's this, exi- there's this situation why that's important because there was false teaching going on in the church there in Crete. And Paul's main concern was with the practical effect of the false teaching. They emphasized ritual purity over godliness flowing out of the gospel. And they lived in a way that proved they didn't know God. These false teachers are contradictions of godly elders. So, so Paul is saying two things. He's saying elders strive to teach and live out the truth for the good of the church and the glory of God, whereas false teachers teach what isn't too true to the, detriment, to the detriment of their hearers for personal gain, personal profit. These two can't coexist. And so leadership defines the church, and it's critical that it happens. And these kinds of false teachings still exist today. Here, let me give you a few. There are church leaders who will hear their people say, oh, you don't like judgment? You don't like the concept of judgment? Great news, everyone. Hell doesn't exist. This just in. Hell doesn't exist. You don't like judgment? We'll do away with judgment. There is none. Or you don't like those verses in the Bible? Well, listen, turns out the Bible's not reliable. So take what you like, leave what you don't. Or you know what? God isn't concerned with you becoming holy. He just wants you to be happy. So don't, don't worry about that holiness and spiritual discipline stuff. Gross. Live for you. God wants you happy. He, that's what love means. That's a God who is loving. And yet, there is a little bit of truth in there because you get joy when your life gives glory to God, but not as you chase fleeting pleasures. As you discover that as you center your life around Jesus, your life will be full and rich and more full of pleasure than you ever could have imagined. So there are these competing belief systems going on. And godly leaders, a loving leader, will put your eternal destiny before your present comfort. Has anybody ever seen the Stanford marshmallow test? Maybe you've seen it on YouTube. A few TV shows have kind of redone it a few times. Essentially, it's this. You put a small child in a room, and then then someone walks in, and they put a marshmallow on the table in front of the child and say, you can eat this marshmallow now. Or I'm going to go, and, and when I come back, if you haven't eaten the marshmallow yet, I'll give you two. And then they walk out of the room. And the kid's sitting there, like, just staring at the marshmallow. They have a camera on the child, just staring at the marshmallow. And then just like, just like, and then eventually they start to, like, sniff it. And then and some of the kids can't even look at it, because if they look at it, they're just going to want to eat it. So they're just blocking their eyes from the marshmallow. They're sitting there, and they're just wanting to hold out for that second marshmallow. Some of them would put it in their mouth and then, no, 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 take it back out, put it there. 
There's a little girl, she started to pick a tiny little, tiny little pieces off of the marshmallow and eat them, thinking they won't know, they won't know, have a little bit. But essentially, it's a test in instant gratification. Will they have less now? Or will they wait for the greater long-term pleasure that comes, right? And that's what godly leaders will do. They'll tell it to you straight. They'll teach you the truth. They'll sway you back to how God has designed the church and your lives as Christians to function. Godly leaders in the church do not allow a platform for false teaching. And a church will be defined for better or for worse by its leadership. Leadership defines the church for good or bad. May we follow Paul's cues here and give ourselves to gospel leadership. I'm going to do something a little bit different here for a moment. And I just, I'd like to put our lead team on the spot and ask you to stand just where you are. Can I get our lead team to stand up where you are? These are our functional elders at our church. Can I also get our pastoral team to stand up? Our pastors also are given to, to, to the elder qualifications of Scripture and are to give themselves to specific areas of ministry as de- designated by our, our broader lead team. And I'd like for us to take a few moments to pray for them. I want you to know that as pastors and lead team, we get on our knees regularly and pray for you. We pray for you a lot. And I know many of you pray for your leaders, and so I ask you in this moment to pray for those standing, and we would ask, we would be so grateful if you would continue to pray for your leaders, that we would not swerve from the truth, but give ourselves to God's word and faithful stewarding of the church that he's given us. Let's pray for a moment, and then we'll continue on. This is no worship band cue. I don't want to open my eyes, and they're majestically behind me. We've we're, we got still more to say. But, uh, but let's pray for them and we'll carry on for a little bit more. Lord Jesus, thank you for building your church. Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, the fact that you have given us leaders who, Lord, are not perfect, but genuinely strive for holiness, who give themselves to your word, who give themselves to living faithfully, Lord, may these be people who give themselves to you first and their church second, who do not capitulate to the culture by looking to simply the church's desires, but your desires most of all, and then lovingly leading their church in light of that. And God, I also pray, I also pray that you would raise up more godly elders from among us who would rightly handle the word of God, strive to live upright lives, and love their church well. Lord, for these leaders among us and those who are to come, Lord, would you bless us with truthfulness and giving ourselves to the gospel above all. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pick it up in the second piece. Discipleship builds the church. Chapter two, but as as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what's good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Paul's so on point here. Older women... 
Stay away from being addicted to too much wine. Younger men, have some self-control, man. Right? He's just, he's just telling it like it is. Verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. This is a passage about discipleship. If you're wondering, what is this christian word, discipleship, just look back with us at, at Jesus. When he had his earthly ministry, there was this group of disciples that followed him around. They literally went everywhere he went so that when he would teach, they could learn. When they had a question, they could ask it, and he would share with them. They could watch his life and observe and learn and grow. And so when we talk about discipleship, we talk about a growing Christian faith. I'm a Christian. It also means I'm a disciple of Jesus. And so the way we do discipleship is we take the more mature and try and line them up with the less mature and, and, and let them watch their lives and grow in faith. And so we want to see that happen. And in this text, Paul assumes that different ages and roles face different challenges and temptations. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men. As Christians... We need to act as spiritual fathers and mothers if we're older. If you're older than a generation, you're to act as a spiritual father or mother to the younger generation or generations. And look for those figures if you're younger. And so what we try and do is, is see that... that Discipleship happens on a Sunday, yes, but it happens beyond a Sunday in the conversation where you ask, what in the world was that guy saying? I don't get this. How do I live faithfully in this circumstances? And you share that with one another, and there's different contexts for that. And when we give ourselves to that, we're giving ourselves to all week long discipleship, ensuring the gospel is central in everyday life. Uh, I've had this happen in my life at a, on a number of instances, and one of them was when I was in grade seven. I grew up going to church, and I was, especially in grade six and seven, myself and my friend Phil, we were tiny terrors. Uh, literally, um, in our grade seven Sunday school class, there was just like a rotation of Sunday school teachers that just was perpetual, mainly because of Phil and myself. I recall one particular Sunday, our, our youth pastor's wife thought she'd give it a go and become our Sunday school teacher. And I recall, it's a horrible memory, standing on the table in the Sunday school class as she was trying to teach with a broomstick, banging the ceiling so that, so that dust was falling onto her hair as she taught. And that was her first and last time teaching the grade seven Sunday school boys class. But... Um, then another guy, you know, the 10th or 11th to give it a try, was this man who was really, really um, impactful to us because he talked in a way that was really compelling to us. And he had us over to his house for spaghetti. He took us camping at the lake. And I recall being a 12-year-old boy and asking the deepest questions of faith that I had at that time to him. And we just sat by a campfire, and he would answer us all. He'd teach us all. And I went from broomstick boy to being baptized at the end of my grade seven year because I truly came to understand what it meant to know Jesus, to be a Christian, because some guy walked into the tiny terror's classroom and decided to love kids. You may be wondering what this display is behind us here we have this morning. 
Every card on this display represents a, a very real need we have in the church in some area of ministry, either for our church or for our community. Every tag is a different opportunity to volunteer in our church, from life group leading to being a middle school youth leader to children's ministry to helping in our kitchen to serving our community breakfast at, our, at the Ed Center Breakfast Program. All kinds of stuff is on there. And this display is going to be outside in the afternoon, and you have the opportunity to, to look at it and to take a tag and to write your name down on a per particular position that you'd like to serve in this year, and you can submit that to us, and we'll, we'll get you more information and connect you and how you can do that. We pray that, that we would disciple well in this place. We disciple in a lot of different ways, children's ministry, youth ministry, women's ministry, but um, this morning, I'd particularly like to shine a light on our life group ministry. So I'm going to ask, I apologize, this is why I don't ask in advance, so I can put you on the spot. I'd, I'd like to ask our life group leaders just to stand where you are. Could, would you stand up? If you're involved in leading a life group at Central, would you stand? And we want to pray for you. We have 30 life groups uh, throughout Fraser Valley East, Chilliwack, and Agassiz. And, and we really believe that, that if you're an adult at Central, our hope is that a way to connect and belong and to, for real discipleship to happen in your life is to connect into a life group, um, that, that you can share your lives with each other, hear each other well, an open home in the middle of the week to pray together, pray for each other, to meet each other's needs, to open the Bible together, challenge each other, encourage each other, spur one another on in the faith. And so I praise God for those who are standing, those involved in life group leadership, and we just want to pray for you. Take a look around if you're interested in joining a life group, and you can maybe have a conversation with, with these individuals later in the afternoon and, and get plugged in. But let's just pray over these, as this is a really intentional discipleship area in our church. Lord God, I praise you for the fact that you call us all to discipleship. You call us all as... When we give ourselves to Jesus, we also give ourselves to a people. And Lord, that can often be grindy, that can often be hard, but Lord, this morning, I, I, I thank you that you have given a number of people in our church the conviction to open their homes, open your word, and open their lives up. For as vulnerable as they will be is as vulnerable as these groups will be, as open and honest as caring as they are, is as caring as their group will be. Father, thank you for them. It's not easy work, but I thank you that they facilitate discipleship in living rooms. And Lord, I know our church is helped by it, changed by it. And for that, we're grateful. Lord, I pray that you would multiply these groups this year, that we would embrace many new people in our life groups this year, that they would come to have community in a church family. And so, Lord, I pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for standing. Finally, lastly, let's, read, let's get into chapter 3, and then we'll call it. Verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, remind them, remind followers of Jesus, remind the church to be submissive to rulers and authorities. We're talking outside the church now, in community, in, in society, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show ourselves, uh, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, changed by the fact that Jesus died to save sinners and rose again, and we have hope. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. There was a man over 100 years ago named Mel Trotter, and he was an alcoholic. And he left his wife and baby for weeks at a time, and he came home from one time of being away, binge drinking and just being away from his family for weeks. And he came home one day to find his son had died in his wife's arms. And he blamed himself saying, I'm a murderer. I'm anything but a man. I can't stand it. I won't stand it. I'll end my life. And then standing over his son's coffin, he swore he'd never drink again. Two hours later, he was stumbling drunk Walking down the cold, icy streets of Chicago, he'd just sold his pair of shoes for a little more alcohol, and he was going to go and kill himself. But as he wandered along the frozen streets of Chicago, barefoot and drunk, his progress brought him past the door of the Pacific Garden Mission, where he was converted after hearing the testimony of the mission's director that night. He, told, he was told that God loved him and would change him, and that's what Jesus did. Later, Mel was able to leave a man named Herb Silowell to Jesus. And following Herb giving his life to Christ, he went on to get drunk six times in four weeks and tried to drown himself. And Trotter found him in jail, in wet clothes. And when he found him, he said nothing. Mel just stood there looking at this friend that he loved on the other side of the bar, soaking wet, wanted to end his life, didn't say a word, but broke down and wept. And Herb looked up and said, my God, you love me. And Mel said, I love you, Herb, like I love my own soul. Can I just ask you a question for a second? What makes a man go to some holding cells where there's a wet, suicidal, drunk guy on the other side and causes him to break down with weeping? There's only one thing. It's the fact that as Mel looked in that cell, he saw himself. That was me. And here's what's so often missing in the church is that we see broken people around and we don't connect the dots that say, that was me. But when we understand that apart from Christ, we're imprisoned in our sin, that we're drunk on the pleasures of this world that are fleeting and never truly satisfied, 
that we're disoriented and don't understand what this is really all about. That's our predicament. And then Jesus stepped in. If you've been saved by his grace, that used to be you in that cell. But Jesus freed you, cleaned you, dressed you, loves you, will never let you go. So you and I can be Mel and go where there's brokenness and have genuine compassion, our hearts outside of our bodies just longing to bring the hope of Christ, the healing of Christ. That's every one of us. Look at what it says in chapter 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of our righteousness, but according to his mercy. If Jesus has met you, I have a plea for you. Go and meet the people who have not yet been met by Jesus and love them. Over the last couple of decades, the church in North America has been losing its cultural privileges in society. Have you noticed that? Here's why that's a good thing. It's reminding us to reclaim our identity as a people sent by God into the world as gospel witnesses. Jesus has always sent the church as a minority that looks so odd, yet so compelling, into a much larger community and has turned it upside down. Jesus has always sent a minority to go and be gospel witnesses where there's darkness and there needs to be light. Listen, I have a plea for us this year as a church. I think we do a, a lot of things well. I think you hear me say that a lot. Here's something I'm hoping and praying that we can do even better this year, better than we have. It's understand and live this out. The fact that the church should be filled with the sick and not only the healthy. I wish we needed more ashtrays outside. I just do. Because the church should be filled with not simply the healthy, but with the sick. The church should be filled with messy people. With men holding hands and women holding hands. The church should be filled with people who live together, who aren't married to each other. The church should be filled with people who do not have it together and they're not made to feel out of place. They need to be able to be brought to a place where they can hear the gospel and allow Jesus and the Holy Spirit to do the work that only he can do in a life. The church should be filled with the sick and not only the healthy or it ceases to have the right to exist. It's been said that the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints, and that's exactly right. The church exists for those who are not yet its members or it shouldn't exist at all. The church is a missionary outpost of disciples of Jesus who meet people where they're at and bring them to Jesus or we are not really a church at all. We are not a country club of members-only jacket-wearing saints. 
We are to be a beacon on a hill that shines light into dark places and draws people into loving relationship with Jesus Christ. And that sounds big, and that sounds grand, but let me just break it down. We do that one selfless deed, one conversation, one prayer for revival, one day at a time in pursuit of holiness, out of grateful response for the unimaginable grace that Jesus has given us, because I was once in that cell, and he has given me joy. So I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to invite every person who's able to stand, if you would. Would you stand with me? And we're going to pray to that end. Let's pray that God would use us in our faith, grow each one of us this year. We're, we're here to do far more than hang out. We're here to hang out and love each other, be there for each other, but we are the, we are the church to do so much more than attend. So let's pray to that end. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your church. And Lord, you know I thank you for this church. I love it. And God, I pray that this ministry year, as we start in September, Lord, you would take our faith where it is today and you would exponentially grow it this year. Make us a people hungry for your word, Jesus. Make us a people in love with your church, Jesus, your bride. Make us a people who live it on Monday. Oh, Lord, we need you. Father, I pray that you would make us a missional people, a beacon on a hill. Help our lives to shine in this world. We ask for that, Lord, and we need your strength to do it. We're not good enough. We're not strong enough. We're not smart enough. We need you to move, and we ask for that move of your spirit. And Lord, there are some standing this morning, I know, who have never given their lives to Jesus, thinking, why am I standing? (laughs) Lord, I pray that if you are prompting a heart this morning, or many hearts, of those who have never turned their lives to you, never known that you offer forgiveness, never known what to do with the hurts and the pains and the fears and the issues that they have, never known that they can turn those to you, that that's what the cross accomplished. Lord, I pray that they would be able to be a people who could respond in faith, turn to you, repent of sin, and ask you to invade their lives here and now. I pray that as well, Lord Jesus. We love you. May we be a church that lift you high and love you well. We are grateful for the grace that you have given us and offer to every person. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. Uh, We just want to show you a quick clip here in a second of of where we're going to be going this fall. We're we're starting a new sermon series and just want to give you a heads up about it, um, show you where we're going. Um, If you've never been here before, you'll see some of the things we'll be talking about in the coming weeks. And, And I just want to set it up this way. Where the culture is loud and the church is silent, we lose a generation. Where the culture is loud and the church is silent, we lose a generation. And that is more true in our cultural moment regarding sex, 
marriage, masculinity, femininity, and gender identity than anything else in our time. So we're going to look into God's word together this fall and rediscover how we have been designed to flourish. So take a look. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Are there any real distinctions between them or are those just cultural constructs? It seems that even broaching the subject of gender distinction has become taboo. What are we to make of the rapidly shifting gender and sexual ethics of our culture? Are our faith convictions hate speech if they differ with the cultural norms of premarital sex, cohabitation before or instead of marriage, divorce, homosexual marriage, and gender transitioning? Is the Bible archaic and simply out of touch with reality? Has Christianity become too impractical for the real world? What does the Bible say about all this anyways? What does it say about masculinity and femininity? And how does that play out in marriage, singleness, parenting, life, and in ministry? God's Word reveals a good God whose ways are good that teaches us that men and women are equal and unique. In fact, the gospel frees us to celebrate these distinctions, revealing the way in which we have been designed to flourish.